Welcome to this episode of Clues from the Keynote. Um, this podcast is meant to introduce everyone to the brilliant visiting professors that we have in this department. Um, it is now that we have the opportunity to talk to them more, and we want to take that opportunity at Communitas. Uh, my name is Katrine Pehus and I'm a master's student of visual anthropology. And my name is Emily Burke and I'm a BA student of anthropology here at Moscow. And Katrina and I are also the co-editors-in-chief at Communitas, which is our online platform at this department. So, today we are in the company of Cheryl Mattingly. And for those of the listeners who have not yet been acquainted with her work, Cheryl is professor of anthropology at the University of Southern California. And Cheryl has also worked closely with Aarhus University since 1992 and been associated with research groups at the Faculty of Arts for more than two decades. And luckily we have been able to grab Cheryl before she leaves for the States and uh, Mattingly has written a series of books, amongst others ethnographies of the moral lives of African-American families trying to provide the best possible care for their children with chronic medical conditions and also the practice of occupational theory in a North American hospital. And as students at Moscow, we have primarily been introduced to Mattingly's work of narrative employment, narrative structures and how narratives should be understood as an ethical practice. And in her work, Cheryl brilliantly combines anthropology with moral philosophy and has a way of refining empirical particulars to larger existential questions of what it means to live and to live well. So I could go on forever, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's hear from Cheryl herself. And Cheryl, thank you so much for being here. I'm just delighted to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to your questions, so fire away. All right. <laughs> so the first one's uh, quite broad, um, but also always an interesting one. Uh, so Cheryl, how did you actually encounter anthropology? Yes, well, maybe everybody has a story that makes it seem uh, like an uh, unexpected encounter, but uh, here's mine. I was a community, I, as an undergraduate, I was studying, I was in literary studies, so, but somehow not satisfied just with reading texts, and that, that was a period where literary studies was more sort of purely text-based and traditional ways. And I thought, well, I'm kind of interested in everyday stories and stories that crop up uh, without anybody thinking they're a novelist or an artist of any kind. Um, and I also had a background in community activism in poor neighborhoods in Boston uh, and in poor Irish communities and poor uh, African-American communities. So. Uh, so I was an activist after I finished my university degree, and I would say I was quite a, a really a failed activist. I turned out, it turned out to be too hard for me, actually, to uh, the work I was doing and too discouraging, and maybe I didn't have the talent for it, and so I gratefully went to graduate school. Um, but I started in an urban studies program, uh, actually at MIT in Boston, 
with the idea that I would still stay connected to this activism my, my, and try to understand how one could be successful at building grassroots community organizations. And I found urban studies kind of so boring, you know. So, but it turned out at MIT that you could take classes from various uh, adjacent universities. So I thought, well, there's Harvard just down the road. I'll take some of their, I'll pick anthropology. I took philosophy classes. I just decided to use my PhD. I was in this PhD program, this PhD to really learn what I had not learned as an undergraduate. And anthropology just struck me. You know, I thought, okay, I guess I'm not going to be a novelist because I maybe also would be a failed novelist. That would be very unpleasant and I would, couldn't make any money, but maybe I could get a PhD in anthropology, which would allow me to write in a way that was maybe the closest to what novelists are able to do. Um, and uh, as compared to any of the other disciplines I could see, and also maybe engage philosophical questions with everyday people in their ordinary lives. So I, I don't think I'm a standard anthropologist. Uh, I've always been interdisciplinary. And it was just, I just uh, needed to be rescued. And anthropology came to my rescue. I, I would say it like that. Yeah. 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 Great. I completely recognize the feeling of being struck by anthropology. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently said in an exam, um, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to think this way. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. just want to think like an anthropologist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The next question for you is, what do you consider to be the main contribution of the kind of insights that we might gain from anthropological inquiries? Yeah, so I think anthropologists are, I think there's even more that we can contribute, we anthropologists an upcoming anthropologist, um, then we even have, there are many directions anybody could answer that question in many ways, but so obviously I answer it from my uh, own perspective. And I think, I think I see anthropology as another way of re-asking philosophical questions, but, but very much not I mean, of course, philosophers don't just sit in armchairs. We know that. But nevertheless, there is a kind of idea that if you could just, you and your books, mm. not all philosophers, but, never, but, but nonetheless, it is a training which is very text-based. And I would also say that's true even of the new uh, versions of cultural studies and a lot of other disciplines that are close to us. I just think that, that this, this commitment to some kind of ethnographic getting in there and being, being a witness to, partaking in various awkward ways, but still trying our best in other people's lives, people not necessarily like us, I just think it opens questions up in a different way. And I think it gives us a vantage point for asking some of the same questions that other disciplines ask, but from um, not only from the books we read, but also from the perplexities we meet, from the not the, our inabilities to even understand or explain what it is that we are not just witnessing, but 
experiencing. It's a full body practice, and I like the embodied part of it, even if it sometimes is challenging, is very challenging. I, I don't know. I think it's a I think we have, anthropologists are not modest people necessarily, but I think maybe we have been, uh, we have been very wary of, of more philosophical moves in addressing big questions. And I think the wariness is maybe a little bit too bad because I actually think we have something to contribute. Um, and there's work that I find quite mind-blowing right now in feminist uh, critical phenomenology that I think is trying to take some steps like the steps we take in anthropology. So I think that there are new possibilities for teaming up and for interdisciplinarity that, that position us because of our commitment to ethnography that really position us to offer something to even the philosophical work going on like right now as I speak uh, uh, in, in, these, in these other areas in which, which other people don't have. They have training we don't have, but we have training they don't have. And um, so I, I think we can afford to, to think in, and to think big thoughts. Um, see, this is the problem with the keeping to time. The, okay, you'll do this in the edit room. Um, but I do think it matters to not spin off into the big thoughts and just do philosophy, but maybe in a less skilled way than the philosophers do it, to, to stay grounded, to stay uh, attentive to small-scale um, small scale events, to not only people's concepts from wherever we go, but also how do they just live, you know, and, and to, to not, not forget that part of what our, our own access uh, allows us to see, that somebody who just read the text of a certain group of people or interviewed five people would not necessarily um, discover. So I, I, think that, I think that that fine-grained groundedness, that embodied quality is um, a, that's a feature of the ethnographic enterprise is something to be um, to be cherished, even if we get very ambitious, theoretically, and sort of to to see it as quite precious, actually. Can I pop in with a question? Yeah, yes. I, I was just thinking: is is this really the true description of your kind of critical phenomenology in a way? It is. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's yeah. So that's a contribution. That's well. I would see. I would see what I'm doing is articulating what I think is some of the in that particular piece on um, perplexing particulars has been my way of of trying to articulate what I think is important and should not be lost sight of in our field. Um, even for those of us who are so drawn to philosophy as as I, for example, am, and to a lot of literary studies as I also am. Um, yeah, mm. and and it and it's a perplexity that maybe you can you could be perplexed encountering anything, including texts, of course. So there's no we don't have the we don't have the monopoly on being perplexed or struck with wonder or surprised by um, by what we we find. But I think that 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 bringing in the voices also of people 
not that we're speaking for other people or some uh, problematic statement like that, uh, or giving voice to people. I don't mean that. I mean actually encountering the quite powerful voices of people who are not us who have things to say and maybe in ways that we have not necessarily encountered yeah. before, um, that aren't necessarily that tidy. Uh, I think all of that is really a contribution that I'm simply, in that piece anyway, around perplexing particulars, trying to just state, you know, mm -hmm. and say, okay, this is a value. Mm -hmm. I have valued it and I have many colleagues I could point to who have uh, who have helped us to uh, find perplexity through our ethnography, and I think we should pay a lot of attention to it, and and even maybe develop some more concepts around it, mm -hmm. um, possibly. Yeah. yeah. And I would just add one other thing, which is that because I'm working on this book on stigma right now, which is which I gave this talk on because I'm like so determined to finish this book, and. It's very easy to not be perplexed when you hit this kind of concept because we seem to pre-know it so well. So when those of us are working in areas where there are these very powerful images, where a group of people have been not only represented but represented in capital letters where, it's, where we need to shift the gaze and it's hard, it's really challenging, then I would say it's, it's especially important to, to, to notice what perplexes us and the people we study. When are they perplexed? When do they wonder what's going on? You know, and, and I'm not saying that's new in anthropology, but, but, but for people like me who, are, who study those who, where there, there's not just a lot of stigma, but there are a lot of representation circulating in popular culture and globally, uh, then then it is especially, it, it's especially important mm -hmm. to, to, to disorient and to pay attention to our own disorientation right. and to make use of it theoretically. So. That's a very fine note also because being perplexed as an anthropologist encountering a field is not a new phenomenon. That, that just yes. sort of happens. but taking into account when people in the field are perplexed by something yeah. and taking that, that seriously, I think is, that's a turn. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, and that's, and I would say, yeah, so there's a kind of, what, is, what are the alterities in their experience? When is common sense disturbed for them? When are, when are certain ordinary ways of doing things or seeing things defrosted for some particular moment to use Hannah Arendt's? Beautiful metaphor. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, yes, I wanted I wanted to return to uh, these feminist um, yeah. critical philosophers, yeah. um, phenomenologists in particular. Um, so you already talked to uh, what you think is um, the way anthropologists might contribute, and also to work interdisciplinary with philosophers. But could you perhaps develop a bit more what, what is actually the contribution of, of the, this kind of philosophy related to your work? Um, I mean, another way was why? Why? I mean, use them. Yeah. <laughs> what is it that they do? Yeah. 
So now you're asking me about the very latest stuff I'm working on. So let me, let me see what I can say. Uh, this, is, this is really what exactly, or part of what I'm exactly writing about in this book that I, it better get done is all I can say. So <laughs> this stigma book called Category Trouble. Um, and so what I would say that, and by these feminist critical phenomenologists, I'm thinking of people like Lisa Gunther and Gail Salomon and Gail Weiss and Linda Alkov. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, and I'm leaving out like a lot of other good ones, but Sarah Ahmed, of course. And in some ways, but especially in some recent, more recent work, I would say, of course, Judith Butler has, was important, but she also, I can feel her phenomenological self uh, emerging in a much stronger way now. So. Um, I think uh, then that, but but these other the other uh, names I'm mentioning are people who unambiguously situate themselves in the phenomenological tradition and and have nevertheless said that we have to rethink phenomenology in we have to queer it as Sarah Ahmed said or we we need sweaty concepts that's Ahmed again or we need a substantive phenomenology, that's Linda Alkov, um, that, that, that these voices um, are coming from their concern to, to think in terms of structural violence, the kinds of issues that people like us in anthropology, we have been thinking about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to think about this, and not just with feminist concerns, but with larger concerns about, about social injustice and post-colonialism and, 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 and issues that have been at the heartland of uh, what Sherry Ortner has written about with her critical anthropology. Um, and, but that all of us are acquainted with, so are words of social suffering and structural violence and, and and uh, you know, social social death is not our word, but we take it up. And um, and abandonment, this kind of social abandonment. So that that um, inheritance that we have in anthropology meets, I think, some of what is uh, being worked with in this in among these these uh, this relatively recent work in feminist phenomenology. I think um, uh, that, that, that goes back to, um, certainly goes back to Simone de Beauvoir and Frantz Fanon, but takes it up in new ways, mm -hmm. I think. So what I would say is this is a nice uh, meeting place uh, for some interdisciplinary work that has a, has, maybe it's not the right word, but does kind of what I'm thinking of as critical phenomenology 2.0, mm. by which I mean that it both uses the resources that come with phenomenology of destabilizing concepts, of being a kind of project of concept critique, of recognizing the um, potential rigidity of, of language or the way it doesn't capture experience. So that all of those destabilizing moves that we associate with phenomenology, but often anthropologists don't think about that critical project of the, of the philosophical uh, line. So we bring that 
not just phenomenology as close description or something which can easily be what it seems to mean in anthropology, but taking seriously the phenomenological project of disorienting or defrosting or um, seeing the excessiveness of experience in, and, and what, what fails to be said in, in, in philosophical or any kind of language. Okay, that's the phenomenological project of critique. And then the anthropological project of critique has, been, at least that I've been involved in, has been much more to do with the power, inequality, the kind of Foucault, Althusser, I mean, that line of critical inquiry. So what I talk about is this 2.0 version is the, is the putting these two together the, um, the, 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 the not thinking, as we often have in anthropology, that if I want to do critique of structural power, I have to leave phenomenology to one side. I can do close description there, but I can't do the real, I can't do the critique which leads me to discourses and macrostructures and some whole other analytic level. And then the classical phenomenology, which has not necessarily, with some exceptions, taken issues of power um, seriously in the way that we like to do in anthropology. So what I see happening is that these feminist phenomenologists are tackling the exact same issues we care about and seeing how they need to amend phenomenology in order to make it more adequate but not abandon it. And then on the anthropology side, I'm trying to be part of that group who is working very seriously with the phenomenological project of destabilizing concepts and at the same time addressing those, for us, classic issues of power and injustice and structural violence. So that's my sort of take on the 2.0 uh, marriage, mm -hmm. <laughs> possible marriage. Yeah. It's not a marriage yet, but it could be. Right. The, 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 we're at the, um, yeah. But the, 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 the discussion that I think is, is extremely promising, mm -hmm. and where I'm trying to engage that with this, um, with by taking a concept that is at the heartland of critical anthropology, stigma, mm -hmm. and sociology, and a lot of other places, uh, and, th and think it through. Um, phenomenologically in a, in a way that brings more of the power of phenomenology, but also including people like Gadamer, who I've loved for an extremely long time, and <laughs> Hannah Arendt. Yeah. How do I also, from my anthropology side, not just rely on the feminist philosophers, but how do I also rethink these philosophers in light of my, ethnog ethnographic, my ethnographic material? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's what I see as my job, and that's something different than what the philosophers can do. Mm -hmm. They can do many things, but they, they don't have our ethnography. They don't have, they don't, they're not, people are not speaking to them, but they're very strong voices mm -hmm. located outside of academic worlds, at least not in the way we have a tradition of listening and taking into account. And I think also that's why, um, at least for me, this project is marvelous, also very difficult. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a family of philosophers, and, uh, and I did cho choose anthropology, and I thought, that's not too far, you know. And then it actually is. 
because yeah. there's, a, there's a fundamental difference of approaching the world exactly as you say, either to look for the things that become uh, common sense and develop them into coherent, logical stringing of theory, or to say exactly what doesn't make sense and can we keep it not make sense? <laughs> um, we, we're going to stick there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stick with it. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, talking about disruption and being perplexed, oh, yes. um, I would like to return to maybe some empirical vignettes you might have. So we have the question, question of whether you have a moment from fieldwork where you've learned something that shifted your understanding of the field or maybe theory in general, what we might call an ethnographic moment and what you might call a perplexing particular. <laughs> yeah, I, I thank you for this question. And then I'll, that returns me to narrative because this was the early stuff, right? So I, I thought, okay, I have several good stories I could tell which one would be the one. And I, I think I will, I, because because, okay, I was in literary studies. That was my background. I was, and I already interested in everyday stories. I had another big failure where I didn't finish a PhD on the World Bank, which I had done all, uh, two years of research and in India and Kenya, and, like mountains of material. Hundred, okay, all of this stuff. And I thought, I just don't know how to write about the World Bank. I don't know how to do it. I don't want to write an expose, I can't figure it out. So, and I also ran out of money. So therefore, and I mean, there was no more to be found. I had been in graduate school a long time. So I'm like, okay, I need a job. I have no money. I don't know how to write this dissertation. And then these people, these occupational therapists, I had never heard of them, they, I got, somehow they got wind of me and they said, okay, we understand that you, you study professional practice and we want somebody to study clinical reasoning about occupational therapists. So I thought, okay, I don't know who they are. I'd never done anything in a hospital before or anything like it, but they're going to pay me. I'll take this job. So I got the job despite my complete lack of expertise and um, and I spent almost two years in the spinal cord unit. I was in other places, but I tell you that spinal cord unit, I have been in many places that would be considered like globally very different, but I don't think I had been in any place that, um, that disturbed me and perplexed me as much as in this hospital in Boston, back to my own usual common city that I had lived in for many years and there I was back there trying to finish my dissertation on the World Bank while getting paid to do this study. Well, the dissertation stayed in a back drawer and these occupational therapists, but not so much them, but the situations that they encountered and I encountered following them around, um, that it, it suddenly I had like new ideas about narrative that I had never thought of before. So here's a small story. Um, so I expected to have people telling stories. Yes, they did. I expected the storytelling of the therapists, as with the World Bank guys, mostly men, to, to inform their practice. Yes, it did. That was not surprising to me. But what 
became surprising. And this was the shock of one particular encounter. So I was following around these therapists and it turned out that a lot of the patients they had didn't or couldn't speak or didn't want to talk. So I thought, okay, storytelling in practice, but they're not actually talking. So now what, you know, and, but there I was following him around and there was this one, um, one clinical encounter. There's a therapist with a severely head injured uh, patient and she goes into his room uh, and he had been in a, a a ter I think a car accident or something, you know, so young man, this is not on the spinal cord unit, but it's very similar situation of active young person suddenly uh, with this severe brain injury. And they have decided on this particular day, the phys physiotherapist and a nurse and the occupational therapist, that they're, he's going to leave his room. He was in a coma for some time. He's just recently woken been awakened out of the coma, that they're going to put him in this wheelchair doing a transfer, which they have to do, and see how he does. So he cannot speak, but he can write. However, this cognitive disability had hit him at that stage of recovery. And so as they're lifting him from the bed to the wheelchair, three women, he writes, be careful of my back. So, and they're talking about him in the third person. Is he a lefty? Do you think we can move him? Can you get his leg? I'll take his arm. And he sort of appears because he has written this anxious sentence. So they acknowledge, no, we'll be very careful. And they, uh, they place him in the wheelchair and then the occupational therapist is left with him because it's time for an OT session. And she decides to try to get him to do some activity with a comb. He doesn't want this comb. She's trying to assess what he can do. And she's using a usual self-care activity. She hands him a comb and says, can you, can you comb the back of your hair? And he just hands her back the comb. So then she says, oh, but you know, I guess she's had wind that he has a girlfriend. You know, when your girlfriend visits, it might be good if your hair's combed or some. It, it sounded awkward, but that's all she had, I guess. He takes the comb and he does then not only comb where she suggested, but he combs elsewhere, turning this kind of assessment moment into, okay, now I'm preparing. Then he writes that he wants, or she has the idea, she says, do you want to do you want to leave the room, which not, had not been part of the idea? And he writes yes, and off they go. And then I see where she takes him. And I, I don't want to tell the story in an hour uh, prose, but I can see that what's, so she takes him several places. She takes him by the nurse's station. She also seems to know that there's a nurse he particularly likes. So the flirtation thing is, quite important. Uh, the, the, the therapists and the, the clinical staff often make use of it. She goes to find the nurse who uh, he particularly likes, who's in somewhere else, brings the nurse back. They say hello to each other. And then the therapist says, let me introduce you. Here's University Hospital, as though she were a sort of, and then she says, let me take you to the 
therapy room where you'll be doing exercises. So she wheels them down there. They look in the therapy room. She has something to say like, well, it's going to be hard work, but you know, it'll, this'll, you'll get stronger. And then she takes them to a very unexpected place. In this hospital, there was only one place you could really see outside to the city itself. The, the rooms were, it's not a wonderful hospital in that regard. But there was an archway that connected two buildings and there were like floor to ceiling windows and you could see the downtown of Boston. So I'm just following behind, you know, the anthropologist sort of taking notes, not knowing what I'm doing. Um, and then I see that she has decided to go this unexpected route. So there they go. She stops the wheelchair in the middle of the like archway, positions it so they can both look out and see um, Copley Plaza and the, some of the old buildings that are iconic, maybe the Prudential, which is really iconic Boston. And she said, you know, you know, your family, uh, I don't think they're in today, but I think, you're, I think your parents are coming this weekend and, uh, and you'll get to see them. And that's all she says. He, again, he can't speak. He doesn't even write anything. They look at it uh, for a moment, and then I think she says something like, do you want to see something else? And he writes yes, and they wheel around a little while longer, and she returns him to his room. That's it. This is not story I'm telling a story, obviously, but there was no storytelling that they were doing. And yet I was haunted by this little episode, this little clinical encounter. I was simply haunted by it and I literally, maybe this is, sounds high drama, but honestly I woke up in the middle of the night at one point, probably a month or so after this happened, and I thought, this is a story. This is actually a story. She and he together, because she needed his cooperation, are creating a story of his future life. This is a tour into a potential future. And it's the future she wants him to want. I mean, I'm not saying, and he seems to want it enough to ask for more of a tour, to say he wants to leave his room, to, so it's not a completely imposed thing. It's, all right, I had more stories, but I, that, that would give you, so to me, I had one of the biggest ahas, like there's so much of narrative which presumes that it's in the telling and that living is one thing. And literary theory was, you know, that narrative imposes a kind of violence on lived life, which is more chaotic. I mean, it didn't fit narrative theory at the time at all. I went back and I read seriously Recur's time and narrative in quite carefully because I could see that Recur was trying to make some arguments that would help me to think about the connection between live time, action, intentionality, and narrated time, narrated in discourse. I went back and reread Aristotle's Poesis and I, so, but this was this, was this moment um, that made me think, okay, there's a whole way I can challenge a whole line of literary theory because there's something narrative within lived time, not all the time, 
but this was not a predictable time. It was not routine time. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't clock time. It was a kind of drama that arose in the moment. And I could see that it was these moments which therapists would often tell as stories later about what matters in practice, but which there was no clinical language to authorize or describe. So there was no discourse around this. So that was my big moment. I'm like, okay, I'm sticking with this, whatever this occupational therapy, medical anthropology, I can think here. So, yeah. yeah. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. So is there practice without narrative, without narration? Any kind of practice at all? Well, you just made the distinction between yeah. unreflective um, being in the world, sort of, and then there's self-narration, sort of like a more conscious, ethical way of being. I would actually divide it differently. Yeah. I would say that I would say that this therapist, very good neurotherapist, neurodevelopmental therapist, when she heard me tell the story of what I had seen, which I gave a little staff presentation, she was very puzzled. And I'm not saying puzzled in that interesting, perplexing way. She's like, this is a very strange way to describe what my practice is. This is not, I'm a kind of working scientist, you know, I don't. So I would say, and then other therapists who heard me said, that's it. Yeah. This is what we're doing. So what I would say is that she was not thinking to herself in a conscious way, here I am in plotting time. Mm -hmm. Whoever would have guessed it? She did not think that way at all. She thought, she, she thought, I need to motivate him. A lot of people in his situation will not be motivated. Therapy is going to be a pain in the ass. It's going to be hard. It's going to be repetitious. He's not going to want to do it. What can I use? She's thinking strategically. She's not thinking about this poesis, all this stuff. This is not her language. Other therapists were, were more um, intrigued because they felt that it really captured something. And she wasn't dismissing it. She just thought it was odd, like a very odd descriptive statement. Um, but others who were more inclined in this more poetic direction found it recognizable. But there were other ways that time could go in a, in a clinical world. There could be the time of rep repetition. I saw a lot of that. And you couldn't always tell whether it was repetitive time or had these dramatic qualities, except that you felt that no one was very engaged, that people were literally watching the clock, that, uh, that it was like, okay, I, uh, I lifted four pounds, now I've lifted six pounds, now I've lifted uh, 17 pounds, you know, and you, could, you, can, you can feel it in your body when there's a sense that something's happening here, a, a something that we could also recognize in phenomenology, uh, a kind of um, a, a shift in time itself mm -hmm. and in the quality of time. So I would say it's not between necessarily the unconscious or common sense and some reflected moment. I would say that it's maybe between the time that, that people, if you ask them and they return to it, they might say, 
well, something kind of happened there. I think maybe we turned a corner or they would use other kinds of language, but, but not the language I'm using. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that sense, do I think all practices have their dramatic moments and their repetitive moments and their clock time moments? Probably. I, uh, I want to ask you a, another question, and it's um, perhaps related. It's about defrosting concept. Yeah. Um, because it is, as, as you said, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to say what some of the things that we've already talked about. Um, but I want to ask you a more practical uh, question or approach. What do you do, uh, either uh, with text, with your material, with your mind? What do you do when you defrost concepts? Well, I don't think I can just intentionally exactly set out to defrost. Like this was, I think the way I would answer that is that um, ideally in our work, we anthropologists, we are, this is a practice and we're learning ways of paying attention. Sometimes it means learning really how to slow down. And sometimes the slowing down is not while we're there because we don't have, we can't slow down because we have to follow the pace of whatever's going on. But we return to it. We write a text about it. We wake up with it. It enters our body. And um, I'm quite respectful of that uh, process of slowing down. And I would say that, that in our training, not necessarily in the classroom, because it's hard to kind of talk about it, but in our training as we try to actually practice our ethnography out in whatever we're calling the field, and even if we're not slowing down there, we might make a little note in our body or in our computer or somewhere and say just a word or a phrase that means come back to this. There's something here, you know. Something there's something worth paying more attention to, and I would just say that that that's what I'm offering. It's not the Socratic uh, method that 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 Arendt is so pleased with, uh, with the, the annoying Socrates. Who, no wonder they killed him off, you know, <laughs> driving everyone crazy. Um, but I would say that the, the part of it that I would share with her, uh, her figure of this Socrates she gives us is that, that our willingness to be dissatisfied maybe uh, with the language that we have, with the insights we come with, but to be dissatisfied sort of precisely. It's not without theory. You know, it's not like, okay, fine, I'll just encounter the world and it will tell me what's important. It's in virtue of having theories and concepts that, can, that, that might lead us to pay attention in certain ways that can then provide in a more precise way a kind of perplexity. So the narrative story, the story I told you about discovering story would be for me an exemplar in my own life of the training in slowing down, of the returning again and again to thinking there's something about that. It was, I mean, this 
encounter was, I think, 20 minutes at the outside. It was almost nothing happened. There were almost no words. I'm interested in narrative. Why am I returning to this non-narrative, uh, boring in a way, you know, hardly anything happens. So what is it that's so gripping? And I would say that I was defrosting the narrative theory I had been trained in and inherited from literary studies by, I didn't, hadn't read Arendt, just defrosting. I discovered that only a few years ago. I'm like, what a metaphor. I'm sticking with that one. That's a good one. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the sort of idea behind it of, um, and I, it might sound romantic, but I actually think paying serious attention is hard work. And it can be quite boring, and it can be tedious, and it can be chaotic and overwhelming. And yet still, I think that training and paying attention in allowing oneself to, um, to be gripped by something that doesn't seem to be explained well, where you feel there's something it, it has to teach you, but you don't know what it is yet. I think that's all I mean. You know, that's it. I don't have anything bigger than that or different than that. Yeah. It's also it's also quite big actually. Yeah. I mean it's uh it's things that you can do in a moment. Yeah. So in that way it's small. But yeah. it's also hard. It is hard and and it and it takes a background. If I didn't have the theory and the narrative theory, I wouldn't have known to be disturbed by this. Mm. It's because I'd had training in a line of theory which was not phenomenology, but literary studies, and because I had been reading a lot of narrative theory, which tended to do that big polarization between lived experience, which, because they were not phenomenologists, I mean, hadn't read Ricoeur yet in a serious way, um, they didn't, they, they, they thought that narrative was, a, was something that was created in the work of text. It's, you needed an author, you needed a kind of narrator, you needed, you, needed a, you needed time that was differently shaped than live time. That was the powerful theory in the 80s when I was, uh, was started this, doing this field work. And so I needed to know all that. If I hadn't known that, if I hadn't been steeped in that, then I wouldn't have realized that there was something there that could disrupt it. So I couldn't have just not known it, else it wouldn't have been significant. And I couldn't have thought, I can do a different narrative theory, actually. I can really, and oh, and now I see that Ricoeur has written something that's been translated so I can re read it reasonably well, you know, and, and, and others too. But, um, so I would, say that, I would say that it's a little moment, but it's really an embedded little moment. Mm. That's an intersection between a practice that, that is attentive and patient and knows how to slow down and return and return, that's the ethnographic practice, and the theoretical, um, the theoretical immersion, mm -hmm. which leads you to expect certain things. Mm -hmm. And then if you become surprised, it means that it might disturb your theoretical theoretically informed anticipations. So this is, uh, this is directed towards the future, this question. Um, 
Do you have a hope or a piece of advice, maybe even a caution, um, to the generations of anthropologists that are graduating in, in these times? Yeah. yeah, I thought about this question. I thought, hmm, I'm certainly old enough. I should be able to give some kind of advice. Uh, I have seen generations, uh, more than one, uh, come up behind me. Um, And yet, uh, I think, um, and I'm, I'm speaking to you here in Denmark, and I'm also thinking very much of the work situation in the United States, mm -hmm. where jobs are really, uh, have been difficult my entire career. It's been difficult for anthropologists to find jobs and incredibly competitive market. And so it's been a sort of, you know, what practical person would become an anthropologist? It's been, it's been a field of impractical people or something. <laughs> um, and I think, I think the situation is a bit different here in Denmark because I would say that there are, um, that anthropologists here can get jobs a little more easily in other kinds of sectors who might find anthropological um, talents of use in the health sector or in education or even in business sometimes. And I would say that, that, that that's, been a, that's been better. So, you know, you do have to be practical, like can you get a job actually, or are you going to have to, you know, I don't know what, be a taxi driver because you decided to do some impractical thing like take anthropology as your field of study instead of, you know, business or... So, um, you know, so I, I, I have to pay the practical, I have to pay that, take that seriously, that practical problem. Um, and I think that now as a, as a teacher of others, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to really um, uh, think, even though I tend to be very academically oriented and um, yet at the same time, I'm trying to work with others who can help help younger these younger generations who might not go into an academic slot themselves or might not find one of those to think what are the other places in which uh, anthropologists with their training could 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 find a place for themselves and though I sound like everybody else because all of us are stuck with this problem, you know, whether the ones who are going to need the jobs are the ones trying to do the training. So I, I don't feel like I have one creative thing to say to add to the fact that we, this is a serious issue and we need to take it seriously. Uh, I think, I think that I got into medical anthropology because I ran out of money uh, and then that turned out to be good because I could get positions like I teach for the medical school, there's a new narrative medicine master's program, and I'm teaching a course on intersubjectivity at the medical school, at not here, but at, at, at USC. Um, but I'm, I'm in conversation with people uh, who, are, uh, who teach at or work with clinicians here in Denmark too. So I think I accidentally uh, got myself into a position that now most many anthropologists should be in, which is how can you learn to speak to audiences other than fellow anthropologists? And 
how do you do that kind of training and how do you learn to give talks to other kinds of audiences and, and gear your work to their concerns but without giving up necessarily all the big questions you still think are important. Um, so I think that I accidentally got trained in the kind of way that we really need to consciously train um, people now. And I also think looking for these interdisciplinary connections, even within academia, like my, my uh, current love affair with uh, these feminist phenomenologists, but also some of the people working in the black radical tradition in poetics, uh, that there's some really fantastic stuff happening there. So that's, but that's still kind of in the academic domain. So I would say, I would say, uh, get your training, feel grounded in anthropology. I think it's important to have a discipline and not be purely interdisciplinary and know the tradition. Mm -hmm. I still think that matters, actually. Um, and at the same time, anticipate and maybe be on the lookout for training to speak to audiences outside of the, the anthropological discipline. Look for, look for, look for those places that, that, including for people who are really thinking they need to also maybe get a job in a profession or something, or at least part of their job, or maneuver their way as I did between a medical school campus and an anthropology department. You know, kind of, kind of think strategically and learn some other, a few other languages, just to make your life more difficult. <laughs> but that's what I kind of had to do because I had money issues. I. Uh, I wasn't a practical person, but I, I got a little practical. Desperation, you know, <laughs> the mother of invention, <laughs> as we like to say in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an end note with the right doses of optimism and pragmatism. <laughs> that's so lovely. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think so too. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, this was so uh, enlightening very and very, very nice. You're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs>